Please be seated if you would and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. I only know of one person beside myself who's ever heard a message on Genesis chapter 13. Most everyone, uh, and I've only heard one because I preached it. And so uh, with your attention at Genesis 13, we'll begin in just a moment. I want to say a couple of things, um, uh, a couple of unrelated things. Pray for Southwestern Seminary. They elected and announced a new president today, and Dr. Adam Greenway, and I am thrilled. Uh, Dr. Greenway was a student of Roy Fish at Southwestern, and uh, then has been the dean of the Billy Graham School of Evangelism and Missions at Southern Seminary in the last six years. Uh, Dr. Greenway is a fellow Southwesterner and is just marvelous, and I am really, really thrilled. He's got a great vision. And uh, I got a little hint uh, early on that he was going to be the candidate. So before it was announced, I invited him to come preach here for his calendar filled up. So he'll be here the first uh, Sunday in uh, November. And it'll be a good reunion of some friends. And that's really important to us. We've got a lot of, a lot of alumni from Southwestern here and a good number of students uh, going to Southwestern at this time from Beach Haven. So uh, th that'll be a great, great day. So pray for him. Uh, the second thing I need to mention to you is... Um, that uh, we have had uh, some really neat things take place on Sunday morning. We're running about 60 more in worship this time uh, of this year, January to February, than we did last year. And so we've had a real significant uh, boost uh, in our attendance. That's filled up the balcony, and it has started a chorus of complaints about the chandeliers because they can't see the screens. In fact... If you go halfway back on the floor and sit somewhere in the middle, you can't see the screens without obstruction either. I didn't know that. And I've got to tell you, for me to uh, have realized that or to, to learn that now, having been here five years, I feel pretty guilty about it. Uh, to be quite honest with you, I can't stand for people's worship to be interrupted. So I asked the Operations and Facilities Committee to look into putting some monitors up on the ceiling there for those in the balcony and uh, they looked at that, and that is not a viable option. Uh, they voted uh, last week instead to remove the chandeliers. And what they wanted me to do is let the deacons know this past Sunday and to let the Wednesday night crowd know for the next couple Wednesday nights, and then on Sunday morning, March the 10th, to let them know. And so the chandeliers will be coming down right after March the 10th, probably the 11th or sometime that week. Uh, we're arranging that. And so... It's not going to hurt our lighting. They don't put out an awful lot of light. They are ostentatious, and they really were not put up right in the first place. Uh, they're, they're put up there uh, right, but the church never voted to put them up. Somebody just decided they want them, they bought them, and they had them installed. And that's not how we do things here. So uh, we're going to be real upfront with you about how we're taking them down. We're going to do that right. And, uh, uh, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. And so we're going to be communicating the congregation. And uh, the folks in the balcony, and Tom McCormick, by the way, is the one that told me he can't see the screens. He sits down here about where Meredith is. And uh, <clears throat> so we're going to get rid of some obstructions in worship uh, and all. And uh, also, the chandeliers are kind of intimidating to some people. They are ostentatious. Uh, churches don't need to have chandeliers. Uh, and uh, by the way, I wasn't here when they put them up, okay? So don't blame me. And almost no one was here back then, and some that were may not have been in favor of them either, but uh, we got a poor community, and we don't need chandeliers up there, so 
uh, in any case, uh, they'll be coming down the week after March the 10th, all right? So uh, uh, be aware of that. Let anybody know who's interested. Communicate with them why. And uh, basically, it's an obstruction to worship, and we can't, we can't really have that. Uh, and and some, we, we're, we're now hearing a loud chorus of, and it's not ugly, it's not ugly, but hey, we can't see the screens uh, because the balcony is filling up, okay? So uh, feel free to communicate that with the folks, and uh, we would appreciate that. And I'll be telling uh, others, uh, and I'll be telling the Sunday morning crowd, I think, March the 10th, okay? Uh, the, the, the committee's mind is made up, and mine is too. We're not going to reverse on this. Uh, we're going to do it, and uh, that's what we're going to do with them, all right? You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, uh, don't, don't, don't mean to be offensive about them at all. Don't, don't take it that way, but it's time. Time for them to come down, all right? So anyway, uh, with Genesis chapter 13, let me say to you, it's terribly important that you and I learn how to deal with failure. Very, very important. In fact, did you know that there is a museum to failure in the United States? And guess what state, guess where it's located? (laughs) There's no failure in Texas. It's in California. It's in LA, California, that area. And uh, many of the failures uh, relate to technology. Uh, Harley or, and, and, and other things. Uh, Google had some kind of technology it was trying and it didn't go well. Their Google Plus thing, they, they've shut that down. I didn't think Google could fail at anything, but they've shut down Google Plus, which was to be a social media site. Nobody used it. Did you know that Harley Davidson at one time had a perfume? That's there as well. Oh, yeah. Harley Davidson had a perfume. And there are a variety of others that had uh, some other things related to that in a museum of failure. You know something, a museum of failure uh, is what you could call many of the chapters in the Bible. You really could. Uh, in Genesis uh, chapter, uh, end of chapter 12, and some of chapter 13, uh, going into 14, which we'll look at Sunday, could qualify uh, for the museum of failure. What you find in Genesis chapter 13 is that, uh, or really at the end of chapter 12, is that uh, you find that Abraham has ruined his witness. He's gone to Egypt. He said, Sarah's my sister, so they wouldn't kill him. And um, God plagued Pharaoh's household. And as a result, Pharaoh found out, uh, criticized uh, Abram, and now Pharaoh will not listen to a thing Abram has said. Now, Abram was a soul winner. And Haran, he won some people to the Lord. Uh, he, he acquired some people, uh, not, not in the sense of purchasing them, but one uh, scholar, Hebrew scholar translates that passage in Genesis 12 that he, acquired, he won some souls of people in Haran. And so he's convincing people to follow the Lord, right? and you would expect that after Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. And so that's what he does in Genesis chapter 12. So he is, he's been a soul winner at the beginning, and he's ruining his witness at the end. It's precisely what he did. And Genesis chapter 13 picks up then in uh, this text. Now, with that in mind, I want to have uh, sort of a contemporary application of that before we go any further. J. Vernon McGee said that he had an uncle that his aunt could not win to the Lord at all. He said, uh, I used to go to her home on Sundays after church and have dinner with them after church. 
And she said, my aunt had her sister living with her as well. One went to the Methodist church, the other one went to the Presbyterian church. And he said, you know what? My uncle would be sitting there at the, di- at the dinner table after church, and you know what they would have for lunch? Roasted preacher. They would slam and criticize and pick apart the pastors and their family, and there at the table in front of his uncle discuss the drama in their churches and the thing they didn't like. And I imagine if there wasn't anything dramatic, they'd make something up. And so my uncle wouldn't say anything. He would just sit there, and then once he was finished with dinner, he'd get up and walk down the street to his club, have a few drinks, and come on back. And never did give his heart and life to Jesus Christ. And J. Vernon McGee said, I, I, I don't wonder why. Now, let me say to you, uh, pastors and staff and others, sometimes we deserve some criticism. You know, it's better just to give it directly to us. Uh, and don't always expect us to agree, but usually it's pretty helpful. Usually it is. Um, but you have to be real careful how you communicate that. Don't ever say anything ugly about anyone in your church, even if they are on the payroll in front of people who don't know the Lord, especially kids. You do that, and what happens is they will not listen to the pastor or the staff member you criticize. They will adopt your prejudice without your maturity. And of course, you don't mean for them to be turned off from the Word of God, but that's the effect. Never, ever, ever do that. It's best to criticize others, if you're going to, before God in your prayer time. That's the best thing to do. And then if something is legitimate, just to gently and kindly share it with the person who needs to know. All right? Now, don't always expect them to agree with you. Don't want to mislead you. Because uh, sometimes, uh, most of the time, people don't know the whole story. And they don't have all the information that we have. Okay, And so sometimes that's why that leads to some confusion. And sometimes we're not at liberty to say. But you just got to be real, real careful where you do that. Well, Abram here is dealing likewise with a blown witness because of what he's done with Pharaoh. And we pick up the story of how he flourishes after failure in verse number 1 of chapter 13. Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock, and silver, and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar which he'd made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Lot also who went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So they're watching this battle between two Hebrew people kind of like that uncle did. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we're brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I'll go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. 
Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east. And they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. Here, Abram demonstrates how it is that we can flourish after failure. And Christians have got to learn how to do that because we do fail. We struggle. If we had a Christian museum of failure, every one of God's children would have an entry in it somewhere. And so I've got to say to you, you must understand that whenever you do fail, because of the grace of God, you're probably going to have a bigger problem with it than God is. If you're humble, if you're humble, the biggest problem will be getting yourself past it, not getting God past it. And you've got to learn then how to deal with it. And there are several things that arise from the text that Abram did that we can do if we want to flourish after failure. One happens to be retreat to God's altar. And that's what he did in verses 1 through 4. Now, after God gave him the promise of Genesis 12, 1 through 3, which is still operational in the lives and the descendants of Israel, especially those who have faith in Christ, he met God at an altar in Bethel. Now, Abram never built a tower. Abram never built a palace. But Abram did build altars everywhere he went. He was getting on his face before God, getting himself clean before God, rededicating himself to the Lord every step of the way. And that's what he does in verse 4 here. He built an altar and he called on the name of the Lord. Every failure requires we get back to God's altar. Every failure is an invita invitation from heaven to get back with God and get our hearts clean before him, to get them renewed and to get ourselves purged from whatever is leeching on our soul that led us to failure in the first place. And so that's what we need to have when it comes to failure. If you ever want to flourish after failure, you've got to learn to return to God, get alone with Him, and get clean before Him. Now, when Abram was in Egypt, there's no indication in chapter 12, verses 10 through 20, that he ever built an altar. He had before. He does after. But there are no altars in Egypt built by Abram. There certainly aren't any by Lot. But when Abram comes back to Canaan and he gets things right with God, he meets God back at the altar, we don't find that Lot does any of that. And Lot has all of this leeching on his soul. He still has it on his soul. He's not been purged. And so he foolishly decides to take himself and his family over towards Sodom. So for Lot, because of Abram's influence, it's one thing after another for Lot. Abram, however, gets back to the altar and he gets his heart cleaned and purged from Egypt. 
Lot did not get Egypt out of his soul. So when he saw the plains of Jordan, how they were fertile like Egypt, as the text says later, it appealed to him. He still had Egypt in his soul, and that's what he chose, much to his family's demise. Made his wife kind of salty. So every bit of disobedience is a call from God to come back to him to the altar. So my, my fear is, is that some people just kind of blow through failure and don't ever rectify it with God. They just kind of presume upon God's grace and they don't come ask him. Take some time to get back with God, bring failure before God, ask him to purge your soul from failure Get it rectified before God, and God will come through and strengthen you. And that's precisely what Alter, uh, precisely what Abram did. Uh, the second thing is to reimagine God's grace. Retreat to God's altar, then reimagine God's grace. I want you to think for a moment about Abram's guilt. He's messed up his witness with, at that time, about the most powerful man in the world. He had an opportunity to win him to the Lord. He blew it. Misled him. And so he's guilty about that. Because he misled Pharaoh, Pharaoh took Sarah into his home and God sent plagues into Pharaoh's household back in chapter 12. Same word used for the plagues of Egypt later in the book of Exodus chapter 4 through chapter 12. Same word. So God breaks loose and breaks out in judgment against Pharaoh's household, all because of Abram. And what he was doing is he was protecting Sarah, making sure nothing happened there to ruin her opportunity to bring Isaac into the world and to be the mother of the Jewish nation. So God broke loose against them. And Abram was a terrible influence in chapter 12 upon Lot. Because of his decision to go to Egypt, he puts Egypt in the soul of his nephew, and his nephew never recovers. Can you imagine the guilt Abram is sensing and feeling in his own heart and soul? He's messed up Pharaoh. He's messed up Pharaoh's household. He has messed up his nephew Lot. He's had a part in every bit of this is precisely what has happened. And yet verse 4 of chapter 13 is still there. Verse 4 of chapter 13 still appears in the text. He went to the place of the altar, which he made there at first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And look how God blessed him in verse 5. Lot also went with Abram. He had flocks and herds. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together. God made Abram a great name and blessed him and prospered him more after his sin in Egypt than he did before. Now, if that confuses you, you may have a problem understanding the grace of God. Whenever you fail, and before you fail, you've got to understand God's grace is larger than any failure any of his children will have in all their lives. It is much greater, much more expansive, 
much more intense. Uh, Romans 5.20 is something you've got to memorize and repeat to your children. Where sin abounds, grace abounds, not just abounds, but it abounds much more is what the text says. That is the grace of God. And so if, if you have a small view of God's grace, that somehow it's limited and conditional and abridged before God, you're going to struggle an awful lot to come to God and get things right with Him. But if you've got the view of God's grace that is as wide as the arms of the Son of God stretched out upon Calvary's cross, you'll come rushing to Him. I remember when I first came to him, I brought an empty cup. Had I known more, I would have brought a bucket or the back of a dump truck to let him fill it. Don't bring just cups. Bring everything. You're coming to a king. Large petitions with you bring his love and grace are such none could ever ask too much. Where sin abounds where your sins have multiplied to where they've nearly buried you, God's grace abounds much more. Charles Spurgeon said, there is more of grace in God than there is sin in you. You may be a failure. God is a success all the time. And that's why people love to call him Savior and Father. And that's what you're meeting when you go back to him. Retreat to God's altar and then reimagine God's grace. But there's a third thing to do that's here in the text from verses 14 down through verse 18. And that is realign with God's voice. Abraham or Abram had drifted so far from God that it took a rebuke from the most powerful man on earth, Pharaoh, to get his attention. His spirit should have turned on him. His soul should have been in an uproar. But he was so calloused and so dull in his heart and soul, it took Pharaoh to pin his ears to the wall back in chapter 12. But he doesn't stay that way. <laughs> he doesn't stay that way at all. Look what the Lord says in verse 14. He says, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I'll make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Well, Abraham apparently heard the Lord because he moved his tent and he dwelt there. And then he built another altar to the Lord. God gave him the land and he built a tent and an altar right there. Erected a tent and built an altar right there. He heard from God once again. Recovering the direction of God and his voice is necessary to flourish after failure. You know, it's not that God is not speaking. God does give direction. He doesn't engage in chit-chat. He's probably not going to speak to you. He's probably not going to speak to you about the color of socks you wear in the morning or color of lipstick or anything like that. But God does talk about the essential things and about decisions, about direction. So it's not that God's not speaking. It's that sometimes people don't have the skills to hear him. Okay? One, and I will tell you, you know how you can hear audibly, audibly the voice of God? Read your Bible out loud. That's God speaking audibly. That's how God does it. 
And then within the boundaries of the Word of God, God will impress your spirit and usually persist with a thought or an impression to do something that is entirely biblical. Okay, God's not going to give you a job driving a beer truck, for example, so don't even think about that. That, that that's too uh, corrupting in society and hurts too many people. So he wouldn't leave that. But if God wants you to have another job, he may direct you someplace else in a place that's entirely consistent with his word. Uh, so within the boundaries of the word of God, God will impress you and direct you. Sometimes he'll speak to you through someone that's godly and consecrated, someone that's walking with him, someone that knows him. And they'll speak a word to you, and it'll get on your heart and mind. It'll stay there. And all of a sudden, as you reflect and think through it, you realize this is consistent with Scripture, and it just seems to be bearing down on you in sometimes a pleasant way, sometimes in an, in a, um, in an unpleasant way, but it has the force of divine authority. And you believe God has given you a word from the word, a word from, your, from the people. And uh, that's what Abraham has got here in his life. God gives him a preferable future. Now, the thing is, uh, there's no substitute for the direction and the will of God. Saul was king of Israel, and Samuel had died, and God had just made heaven brass to Saul. Saul could not get any direction from God, and he needed it. Saul had to have direction from God about what to do with the Philistines in battle and in war. In Saul's last battle, he couldn't get any direction from God, and so he sought a substitute. Instead of repenting and getting right with God or finding a prophet after Samuel had died, he ends up going to the witch of Endor. Now, she's a charlatan. She's a fake. Because she calls Samuel up as a medium, and she Scares the daylights out of her. She's shocked because it worked. So she's a charlatan. And uh, momentarily, in a very rare, unrepeatable incident. Rare, unrepeatable incident. Samuel appears. He comes back and he chastises Saul and doesn't tell him a thing about the Philistines. Doesn't tell him anything at all. And Saul enters in the battle with the Philistines, and that's his last one. He's killed. You know, we've got some of his offspring with us. Instead of looking to God, sometimes people will look to friends for direction. That can be okay if you're seeking confirmation for what the Lord's leading you to do, if you're obedient to the Word. But friends and their counsel cannot be a substitute for God. Can't be. Some will even look to pastors. I've had people come into my office, and I had someone, someone a few weeks ago, a couple months ago actually, who was wanting me to confirm a dingbat decision they had already made. And I will tell you, probably about 10% of the time, that's what pastors have to deal with when people come to them for counsel. Now, you go ahead and come for counsel, okay? Don't you, I'm not going to call you a dingbat and use you as an illustration, all right? But uh, uh, I, I would say 10% of the time, if not more, when people come, counsel to a pastor or staff they want the pastor or staff member to confirm what dumb decision they've already made see they know it's dumb and they don't have any peace and if they can get someone in spiritual authority to confirm it then uh, they, they feel much better about it so I, I didn't confirm it I didn't I couldn't mislead them you know I, I have to answer to the Lord about that uh, most of the time people are coming for good reasons by the way and I've had delightful times with our folks uh, when it comes to that 
But uh, the point is, is that there is no substitute for obedience to what you already know to do. And, and that oftentimes is the challenge of walking with God. Most of the time, people already know what to do. Most of the time, the Lord's already made it clear. And the reason they go to others instead of just getting with God is that they don't want to do what God wants them to do, and they're looking for an out. Be really, that's, what Saul, that's what Saul was doing. Be extremely careful. Be more like Abraham. Renew the word of God in your life. And here's how you do that. You get to his altar. You get your heart clean before God. Lay it all before him and surrender. That's what you do. You lay it all before God. And so you renew yourself and retreat to his altar. Then you end up reimagining grace. You trust his grace. And you jump back into the middle of God's will as if you've always been there. As if you belong there. As if that's your place. Because it is. And his grace is big enough to contain you. And then... You surrender to whatever God wants you to do, and then God will direct you. Ladies and gentlemen, that's how to flourish after failure. God never intended for any believer's failure to be final at all. In fact, I, I really do, and I'll repeat what Winston Churchill said. He said, success is running from one failure to the next with undiminished enthusiasm. If you're going to make it, if you're going to be faithful, you've got to learn how to do that. It's okay. God can handle your failure. You handle it his way, and he's going to help you flourish after failure. Thank you, our Father. Help us to have that kind of heart and mind and trust. And